if we accept that we have responsibilities to vulnerable others, if we accept that we have limits on our knowledge, power, and political will, if we build shared structures that allow us to reduce conflict in the world as much as possible, then we can work towards a better world for the vast multiplicity of vulnerable beings who might one day get to embrace the void. anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 232 of Embrace the Void, where we're still all in it together, it seems. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking non-human animal ethics, so... Let's widen that moral community. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My returning guest this week is Jeff Sibo, director of the NYU Animal Studies Master's Program and author of Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves. Jeff, would you like to once again say hi to the void? Hi, void. Nice to see you, or not see you. It's good to see you again. It's it's super weird because when I was re- prepping for this, I, I went back and looked at our, our chat from the first time we talked, which it turns out was back in October 2020, right at the kind of <laughs> beginning of the, the pandemic. And I, like, I had a horrible moment of weird time dilation thinking about the like the spanning period of time there. And the fact that yeah. you've gotten a book done in that time <laughs> is, is disturbing to me. So... How's things? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, th- things are still in flux. Yeah, I never would have guessed that we we talked as recently as on, on this show as recently as October 2020. It feels like a lot longer ago. And the fact that we have now done two of these during an ongoing pandemic is wild. wild. Yeah, it's yeah. such weird stuff. Because <laughs> there were like, there were questions from that first and folks can go back and listen where it was like, you know, just starting out like basic questions about how is this going to affect animal ethics. And so I'm, I'm very curious to hear about like two years in how you feel about how that's going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should definitely talk about that. There's some good signs and some not so good signs as you might expect. Sure. Uh, before we get to the book, though, I have to, of course, check in because of our one of our previous conversations. How's your animal crossing going? Have you <laughs> have you fully industrialized to maximize your profit yet? So I never got into Animal Crossing. My partner really got into Animal Crossing. However, I have played probably dozens and dozens, maybe over 100 video games during the pandemic, because what else can you do when you live in New York City? Which one hooked you the deepest? Oh, so many. I mean, a lot of open world RPGs, the types of games that you can sink 100 hours into easily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I, I never industrialize Animal Crossing, but I will say that whenever a video game 
uh, invites you to go hunt innocent wild animals to get materials to use for upgrades. I always do that. I know there are a lot of people, including a lot of animal ethicists, who go on mm. vegan runs and they make a big deal about vegan runs in these games and they beat the games and they do as 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 well as they uh -huh. can without harming any digital animals. And once once the the digital animals reach the point where they might be sentient, of course, I I would feel as though I have to do the same thing. But right now, I take the the easy route and and kill them and upgrade my bow and arrow. <laughs> oh, I'm throwing out all my questions. I mean, this this entire episode is now going to be about animal video, video game, game ethics. ethics. Yeah, oh, this yeah, is, that this is wonderful. <laughs> First question: Have you played The Long Dark? No. What is that? Oh, it's a really excellent survival open world game. Um, yeah. It takes place in like the Canadian wilderness after a sort of cataclysmic society ending event. It's really the reason it comes to mind is because, first of all, it's got a warning at the beginning that's like, yes, we know that wolves don't act this way. Please don't email us <laughs> because they had so many people like wolves aren't aggressive in this way kind of thing, which, again, totally fair. But it's also has specific achievements for like vegan runs and things, which is why that is cool. Yeah. yeah. So so few games pay attention to that or give you any kind of reward for that. And there are some games that like <laughs> present animals to you in a different way. They can guide you to cool mm -hmm, items mm -hmm. instead of being the cool items and, and so right. on. Or they can be your companion and maybe they die in a dramatic way that the character is sad about uh, at, at a certain point in the story. But at least the character is sad about that. But yeah, mm -hmm. not many games are doing things like actually naming and incentivizing vegan runs. And I think that would be cool. Like these representations, honestly, I think do matter. And if, if we could move in that direction, that would be awesome. And it's very amusing to me that during a lockdown, you were got really into open world games <laughs> and it, that you as an animal ethicist specifically are like, when I'm playing animal games, I'm just going to I'm just going to murder some animals. Right. You know, so I mean, I, worried I, about like, you know, does that, is that yeah, bad for your virtue or something? But I guess not. There, I know. I, 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 I think that is a real question. Like like mm -hmm. I, I say it jokingly, but but I really do think representations matter. And, you know, this this relates to old debates about whether violent TV shows and movies and video games are, mm -hmm. on one hand, opportunities to cultivate vice and become more callous in our relations with other human and non-human animals, or on the other hand, opportunities mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, uh, just blow off some steam and, and uh, exercise, <laughs> express those escapism. impulses yeah. in a, in a yeah, safe, safe uh, environment. And I'm not sure which of those is right. I do think in general that uh, the, the way that we represent humans and other animals in media like does uh, shape the way that we think and talk and feel about them and behave towards mm -hmm. them. So, so I do think that there are some stakes here, but there's also, you know, priority setting that needs to happen. And it mm -hmm. always made me laugh when people who, for example, eat meat and are not particularly like morally or politically engaged around animals in the real world would be horrified if I right. <laughs> shot an animal with a bow and arrow in a video game. Uh, it seems like a case where where the priorities should be should be flipped. But but I do I do appreciate uh, people being concerned about animal welfare wherever they are. So so if, if you are concerned about animal welfare in video games, maybe that can be a good stepping stone. And, you know, I swear we're going to get to the book, but it, it's funny to me because, <laughs> you know, a lot of games these days have like a morality system. And mm -hmm. especially, you know, even when they don't have a morality system, I always find that I tend to play a fairly like good character. Like I don't I don't like to play evil runs the way that people yeah. do. Um, yeah. I'm curious, do you ever do that where it's like because like, why am I being ethical that way? But like you're talking about like this sort of, you know, do you do a run where you're like, I'm just going to maximize negative utility as much as possible? <laughs> Honestly, I have a really hard 
hard time doing the evil runs when they are like listed and mm-hmm. counted as evil runs. Like as soon as I realize a game is paying attention to these choices, then it becomes really <laughs> important to me to make the good choices. But once mm-hmm. I get the impression that the game is not paying attention to these choices, then I start, you know, killing civilians and <laughs> and doing <laughs> doing whatever. And so maybe that tells tells me something about, you know, my my motivation. Maybe it really is all about signaling at the end of the day after all <laughs> rather, mm-hmm. rather than than just uh, doing something that is intrinsically good for the sake of the intrinsically good thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I have always had a hard time doing doing the evil runs. I always do the good runs. And I think this is true about most video gamers, actually. If, if you look at the the stats, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of gamers will will tend towards the sort of uh, virtuous choices, virtuous runs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some really good gamification analysis about, mm-hmm. you know, how to do morality systems in ways that don't just make it another like stat boosting mechanism or something like that. So, yeah. okay. All right. I'm, I'm putting this back in the box. Let us move on. Sorry, to your one, very one more thing. Oh, I, yeah, go ahead, go I, ahead, go I ahead. think I think we, we, we talked about this briefly last time, too, in a slightly different context. But but the other thing that I have to say that always bothers me about this is that utilitarian choices are often framed as the evil ones. As the evil, <laughs> and, right? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And deontological choices are, or, or virtue theoretic choices are framed as the good ones. And, uh, you know, of course, there can be a place for that, as we might discuss later in our conversation. But right. it, it, it is it is tiring that, that you know, people who are trying to do the, the most good possible, the greatest good for the greatest number, are always right. uh, framed as making evil choices that send your character down a dark and ultimately not successful path. It's true. I think Frostpunk is particularly the worst at this. Where it's like, come on, <laughs> if I want to cut their food with sawdust to keep them alive, like that's that's good, yeah. right? That's, yeah, that's okay. that seems smart to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, on to the book. On to the book. So the book is Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves, which uh, I always love sort of deliberately ambiguous titles. Um, and you talk about this a little bit in the book. Do you want to say a little bit about like, what are the different ways we could understand this title? Yeah, so the book in general is about why animals matter for global health and environmental issues like pandemics and climate change, both as causes through no faults of their own and as victims. So our use of animals contributes to these global threats, and then these global threats in turn contribute to biodiversity loss and individual animal suffering. And so the book is really a call to save animals and save ourselves. And I note that the title Saving Animals, Saving Ourselves is multiply ambiguous. And and some examples of that, uh, some possible interpretations that I endorse are we should save animals and ourselves because we actually can improve human and non-human well-being at the same time rather than trading them off against each other. We should save animals, including ourselves, because of course humans are animals. We should save animals in order to save ourselves because Mm -hmm. our fates are linked. Uh, When we reduce our use of animals and increase our support for animals in various ways, that actually improves health and environmental outcomes and improves human lives. And we should save animals by saving ourselves because when we improve uh, human lives and, and social and political and economic systems, we can build more knowledge and power to then use to, to reduce our use of animals and increase our support for animals. Uh, and we should save animals in order to redeem ourselves uh, because the way that we treat them shapes our character. Mm. And when we treat them better, we can build better characters. And we should save animals by redeeming ourselves because when we build better characters, we can uh, treat animals better naturally without even thinking about it. But I also Mm. note that there are some interpretations that are probably not correct. So for example, I am not arguing in the book that saving animals is always necessary. There might be many cases where animals are suffering and dying, but for example, we lack the knowledge and power that we would need to effectively help them or where 
effectively helping them would require acting in a way that is otherwise morally impermissible. So, so we might not always be able to, to save them. And, and also saving them might not always be enough because there are all sorts of other things that we should do for them over and above saving them. For example, we should mm -hmm. help them and, and improve social services for them and, and build a more accommodating infrastructure for them and, and do all sorts of other things that can improve outcomes for them that go beyond like pulling them out of a lake. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, lot, lots of interpretations that make sense and, and a few that would maybe be misleading. So the way you were sort of framing that, it made me think of you know a common concern that comes up in ethics, which is about like how much are the well-being of different individuals, you know, sympathetic versus in conflict, mm -hmm. right? And like I think people have different approaches, different ways of framing that. Is it correct to say sort of that your perspective leans towards generally seeing the well-being of ourselves and the well-being of non-human animals as being more much more overlapping than in conflict in this kind of way? I think there is a lot of low hanging fruit where human and many non-human interests are overlapping. And, and there are a lot of mm -hmm. policies that we can pursue that would be mutually advantageous for humans and many non-humans. But but the book has a kind of complicated arc and and it, it sort of complicates that story by by the end. So I start off by noting, for example, that our use of animals in factory farming and our, in general, our exploitation and extermination of animals through deforestation and the wildlife trade. These are all drivers, not only of, you know, trillions of non-human deaths per year, but also of pandemics and climate change and, and mm -hmm. other global mm -hmm. health and environmental threats. And so simply stopping those industries will spare trillions of non-human lives a year and mitigate these environmental uh, threats. And on, on the other side of the equation, there are all sorts of uh, adaptations that would be good for humans and non-humans at the same time. For example, when we build new cities and food systems and energy systems and transportation systems to be more uh, resilient and sustainable in a world reshaped by human activity, we can make changes that would be good for humans and non-humans, like building mm -hmm. better public transit systems that have uh, wildlife corridors to reduce collisions with animals or installing bird-friendly glass on, on buildings and vehicles, again, to reduce collisions with animals or uh, limiting the spread of zoonotic diseases among animals so that we also limit the spread to humans. These are all things that can be good for humans and non-humans. But towards the end of the book, uh, especially, I acknowledge that there are always going to be winners and losers. No matter how we mm -hmm. configure the world, some animals are going to benefit and some animals are going to suffer. And so nothing is going to be perfectly positive sum. Everything mm -hmm. is going to benefit some of us and and not others. And so what I argue is that we should think holistically and structurally and comprehensively about these issues and make choices that are as positive some as possible and then do our best to mitigate the harms that are, of course, going to to result because nothing is perfect. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. So this this comes to sort of like a broad question. It's a little bit of a weird question to fit into this, but I, I think I want to, you know, bring this frame in before we dive into some of the details you know, as I was reading through this and, and generally even thinking about animal ethics, sometimes I get the vibe that like, you know, we made a big jump forward in ethics of uh, around animals like 50, 60 years ago or something, right? For lack right. of a better person, the sort of singer generation of, of sure. yeah. you know, wh where we made it, a, you know, a jump to like treating them as like not nothing or something like that, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's this sort of vibe where it's like, not not much else has happened since then. Like there hasn't been a lot of innovation, I feel like, or it's it's sort of hard to make, for me to get a sense of like what further innovation or even potential success there's been after that jump. And I'm curious, 
as someone who spends a lot of time in the animal ethics world, like, do you, do you get that kind of vibe too? And how do you feel, how do you think about that timeline? Yeah, I, I do in general think that something like that has been true with, with some caveats. So, so I agree that at least in the West, the, the sort of uh, Peter Singer, Tom Regan generation really kickstarted a discussion in contemporary analytic philosophy and in some ways accelerated the the animal protection movement. And that was a really big moment. That was a, a, a really revolutionary step for animal ethics. And and then over the next 40 years or so, I, I think there were incremental changes uh, from there. So, so for example, situating animal ethics in other types of moral frameworks, not just a certain kind of consequentialism and rights theory, but also virtue theories and feminist care ethics and and other frameworks like that. And, and also gradually expanding our views about which animals are sentient and uh, which animals are agents in a certain sense and, and what mm-hmm. their minds are like and, and what that might mean for their moral status and our treatment of them. But those were in various ways, incremental steps. Uh, and I do think that for a long time, for decades, we were basically stuck at step one arguing for the moral status, the sentience and moral status of animals and arguing that industries like factory farming and and certain types of really bad animal research are wrong and ought to be ended. And we were stuck there because the world is still stuck in a place where people broadly think that either animals are not sentient or they lack moral status uh, and, and that these industries are acceptable. And so we get stuck having the same arguments over and over again. But I mm-hmm. do think that over the past, I would say 10 to 20 years, uh, animal ethicists and and other academics who work on animal issues have have taken steps beyond that and and have basically said, look, we can keep debating whether animals are sentient and have moral status or not, if you like, but we are going to move on and start to ask new questions. And so people really have been exploring all sorts of new directions in animal ethics and politics lately. And just some examples of that, first of all, again, include expansions to new kinds of animals. So much more thinking about not just how we treat uh, captive and domesticated animals like farmed and, and lab animals, but also how we treat wild animals, how we treat aquatic animals, uh, how we treat invertebrates, and in general, what their lives and what their welfare are are like. And that has been really exciting. There has also been a political turn where people are thinking much more about the, the legal and political status of animals. Is there a sense in which they should be legal persons? Is there a sense in which they should be uh, political citizens of, of particular communities? Is uh, mm-hmm. there a sense in which we should be rethinking basic um, ideals and structures like liberalism and democracy and capitalism in light of the, the recognition that many non-human animals should be members of political communities? Uh, those questions are all interesting. And then, of course, creation ethics and population ethics questions uh, about what what does it mean to bring animals into existence? Uh, What types of populations should we Mm -hmm. bring into existence? Uh, Is it better to bring into existence quintillions of insects (laughs) or, you know, a hundred elephants? These these are all really interesting and important questions. And I think there are a lot of exciting directions people are going to be exploring in in the coming decades. Nice. So, okay, several things I want to ask about in there. Um, Do you feel like that kind of incremental approach that we are currently going through is getting us towards what you think we need to be getting towards in this book? Or do you feel like we're going to need something less incremental at some point? We definitely need something less incremental. We we need transformational change. Uh, But but I do think pursuing incremental changes within existing structures can still be really helpful. And, and in mm-hmm. general, this, with, with some exceptions, of course, this is all contextual, but in general, this is my view about social change. People will often 
argue between sort of moderate incremental approaches and and then more radical uh, 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 revolutionary approaches. And mm-hmm. my attitude is usually that that we should be advocating for both types of change at the same time, because when we make incremental changes within existing structures, we can you know mm-hmm. uh, develop momentum towards including this sort of consideration and improving things in this direction. Uh, and, and that can bring us closer to the more radical goals. But then also when we advocate for radical change, that can shift the, the center of debate and, and make incremental changes seem more reasonable in comparison. So I think uh-huh. right now we are in this interesting place where, where we can do some gradual incremental things for animals that would be genuinely helpful. But also we recognize that we do need to make these major structural changes just for humans because of the reality of pandemics and climate change. We really do need to rethink some of our fundamental um, mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure and and social and political and economic ways of being. And, and so all I say in this book, all I argue in this book is as we do that, we have an opportunity to also consider the interests and needs of animals and how human and non-human fates are linked. And if we do that, if we think about those things holistically and structurally, then when we make the transformational changes we already know we need to make, we can make them in ways that reduce harm across the board rather in ways that reduce some harms while increasing others simply because we're not thinking about them. Mm. Do you worry about sort of the common objection that like, if you try to do both, the incrementalism happens and it undercuts the transformational. So if you, you know, trying to get rid of factory farming, if you just make factory farming, you know, humane enough that people stop thinking about it again, then you never get rid of the factory farms. Yeah, I do worry about that, that sort of uh, humane washing, greenwashing concern that if, if you pursue incremental reforms, then in various ways, you reinforce the appearance of legitimacy for this system. You make it seem like if we make these changes, then the system is good enough. And now we can go back to supporting it. And, and we can assume that the system is now treating animals and public health and the environment well. But I think that uh, all that means is that we should pursue these sorts of incremental changes thoughtfully, rather than mm-hmm. than not pursuing them at all. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so we can pursue them thoughtfully by, first of all, making sure that we spend some time pursuing them, but some time advocating for radical changes as well. And then when we achieve incremental reforms, we can say, this is a major step in the right direction and we want to celebrate this, but we should also recognize that we need to go much farther before we have anything like a just food system or, or other, other types of systems. So a lot, I think, has to do mm-hmm. with the framing and, and what else is being done in conjunction uh, with with this, but but yeah, yeah, it is a major concern, which is part of why we need to do this stuff in a in a thoughtful way. Fair enough. I know it's a concern that a lot of folks often have in various kinds of political discourse. So I was curious mm-hmm. how it yeah. fits in here. So I want to pick up on the normative thread a little bit because you were sort of saying in there, you know, kind of that like the ethicists have a little bit like we're we're moving on from endless normative debate and we're going to get back to some applied work or something like that. And I, I it felt a little bit like in reading the book. You know, you sort of emphasize the way that several normative theories kind of converge on similar conclusions regarding the treatment of animals, which is not an uncommon thing to see in the ethics world. Do mm-hmm. you have a feeling about like, do we need to be prioritizing one particular moral theory or another in our practical reasoning? Or at this point, are you like, all roads are going to lead to the kind of changes that we need to be making? I think it matters a lot. Yeah, I, I, I do think it actually really does matter what what moral theories and political theories we accept. But I think it matters mostly down the road. I think in the short term, there are certain general major goals that we can agree upon across reasonable moral theories. And, and the example mm-hmm. that I use in the book 
is utilitarians and right theorists on a certain interpretation should converge on roughly the idea that we have a moral responsibility to reduce uh, farmed and wild animal suffering to the degree that we can do that within certain uh, ethical limits. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that already is going to support a lot of really important work that we can agree on. And of course, we can also agree on ending factory farming and deforestation and the wildlife trade. Those, those parts are easy. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so, so what, I, what I suggest is basically we identify this kind of uh, broad pluralistic moral framework that different moral theories can, can converge on uh, in general terms for the most part. And then we mm-hmm. set some shared goals that we can build coalitions to pursue. And, and these make a big difference. Again, ending factory farming, deforestation, the wildlife trade, reducing a lot of wild animal suffering, improving their lives. Those are major things. And if we could do that, that would be incredible. And then mm-hmm. along the way, we can debate the harder questions about at the end of the day, are we utilitarians or Kantians or virtue theorists or something else? And what are our views about you know, how many animals are sentient and how much welfare they can experience and what makes life worth living and, you know, whether we should mm-hmm. uh, aggregate well-being across individuals and species. Those will be the tough eventual questions where paths might start to diverge. But we can spend the next four decades working <laughs> working on the low-hanging fruit while supporting some research about population ethics and getting clear on what we want to do beyond that. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sympathetic both to the sort of pluralism and this idea of make more low-hanging fruit. I do want to, you know, because it is a philosophy podcast, there was one part in that section on rights versus utilitarianism that my, my ears perked up a little bit, and I apologize if I misunderstood it, so help me clarify. It sort of seemed like you were saying that, like, rights theories are less demanding than utilitarianism, which is important for mm. these conversations we're having about, like, the level of demandingness that we're willing to accept in our theories now, it, it seems to me that that would depend on what kind of rights theory and what kind of utilitarian theory. Like I could have a, a really absolutist rights theory up against a satisfying, you know, versus maximizing model of utilitarianism. And that in that situation, the rights theory could potentially be more demanding. Do you, do you agree or how do you how do you understand that relationship? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And mm-hmm. So in this chapter, I, I was using what, what I took to be kind of standard, generic interpretations sure, of utilitarianism mm-hmm. and right theory, because these are often employed in the literature in order to present mm-hmm. these theories as though they they have a stark disagreement about certain matters like wild animal welfare. So for example, in the Mm -hmm. literature or in conversations, people often assume that utilitarians are really pro-intervention, like we want to kill all the predators and (laughs) do all of these other things to reduce wild animal suffering because wild animal suffering is bad and we should be doing the most good possible by any means necessary. Whereas the rights theorists are very anti-intervention because we have no perfect duty of beneficence in the first place. We have no responsibility to reduce wild animal suffering in the first place. And we have duties to respect wild animal autonomy. And that actually gives us a strong reason not to intervene because intervention would be uh, interfering with wild animal autonomy. And so mm-hmm. utilitarianism is is framed as like very demanding and not particularly restrictive. Go reduce their suffering by any means necessary. And rights theory is framed as kind of the opposite. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only are you not required to help them, but you might not even be permitted to try to to help them in a lot of situations. And what I argue here is that because of the the complexity of wild animal suffering and because of our increasing complicity in wild animal suffering through, again, deforestation, development, fires, floods, climate change, all of these causes, uh, mm-hmm. because of that, 
utilitarians and rights theorists should converge to some degree. Utilitarians should accept we might not always have the knowledge and power we need to effectively and efficiently uh, reduce wild animal suffering at scale. We have to be a little bit humble about our interventions, and that should make us ease up a little bit. But then mm -hmm. on the other hand, the rights theorists should hold that because of our increasing complicity in wild animal suffering, we should no longer think of it as independent suffering and we have this option of intervening or not. We should instead think of it as we already are intervening and we have a responsibility to reduce and repair the harm that our activity is causing to the degree that we ethically and effectively can. And, mm -hmm. and so if you start with those generic standard interpretations of utilitarianism and rights theory, the stereotypes about their radical disagreement about this and other issues go away, and they both converge on this more kind of nuanced position that we should intervene where possible, but we should also be careful and cautious and humble about it. And I think mm -hmm. that is the kind of middle ground view that can be a really useful starting point for coalition building. I mean, that makes sense, right? The utilitarian can just say, if you kill all the predators in the xenomorphs, just take over the universe. That's <laughs> not going to work yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So let's let's talk about this demandingness thing a little bit more, though, mm -hmm. uh, agreeing that, like, there isn't necessarily a one-way direction on the demandingness. But, you know, what do you feel like the level, what, what role should demandingness play essentially in our moral calculus? There are some folks who are like, you know, if something's too demanding, everybody's just going to opt out or something like that. And it's always, obviously there's a weighing process here, right. but like, what is your feeling on that weighing process regarding demandingness at this point? Well, I think demandingness is not in and of itself an argument against uh, something that would be really helpful and, and important that we have the power to do. I, I do think mm -hmm. that morality in a world like this one with so much unnecessary suffering, so much unnecessary death, much of which we are responsible for, I do think that we, we have a moral responsibility to do whatever we can to make the world a better place, uh, even if that does mean making some sacrifices uh, to our own health and well-being. Uh, but I also do take de demanding this seriously uh, for, for pragmatic and strategic reasons. I mean, it is true, for example, that we need to engage in a certain amount of self-care uh, and, and treat ourselves <laughs> to some degree in order to, to build a life through which we can, we can uh, pursue altruistic goals in an effective and sustainable way. And that especially is true collectively. If we want to mm -hmm. build a community, social and political and economic norms and structures that will motivate um, and empower people to collectively pursue altruistic goals, to, to be better to our fellow humans and our fellow non-humans, uh, our fellow animals, uh, then, then we really do have to, to be thoughtful about how the limits of our knowledge and power and motivation, political will, are going mm -hmm. to interact with, with these efforts. And so, you know, in, in the individual case, you might think, okay, maybe I should give 90% of my discretionary income to charity. But if I did that, I'd probably realistically burn out in two weeks. And, and so it might be better to start with 10% and then kind of gradually work my way up so I can make sure that I am on solid footing and, and I can really mm -hmm. sustain this. And then you do much more good in the long run. And I think similarly, collectively, maybe it would be good given how much welfare animals have to, to allocate you know, 90% of our discretionary collective resources to improving their lives. But if we try to do that, we would never sustain that kind of policy as, as a, a population, at least at this point. So mm -hmm. maybe we should start with like 0.1 of our GDP and, and, and go from there. But, but again, all of that is pragmatic and strategic. Uh, I, I think ultimately we should, we should push ourselves to, to do as much good as we realistically, sustainably can 
uh, and and that will mean engaging in a certain amount of individual and collective self care. But mm-hmm. the need to engage in individual and collective self care is not a license to just do whatever the hell we want. It really is a responsibility to take care of ourselves um, while pushing ourselves more and more to take care of others. Okay, great. So let's talk about some like specific, you know, various hard cases, right? So first of all, maybe this isn't a hard case, but some folks, and you mentioned sort of wild animals a couple of times here, mm-hmm. and, and there is this kind of classic, you know, if you care so much about animals, are you going to wade into nature and, and separate prey from predator and thing like that? Where are you at this point on the question of what do we owe to regard regarding the suffering of wild animals? I think we have profound moral responsibilities regarding the suffering of of wild animals. You know, so there there are about eight billion humans alive. There are tens of billions of of domesticated animals alive at any given time. Many more if you you include invertebrates like insects. But there are quintillions of of wild animals alive at any given time, and and these quintillions of wild animals suffer and die all the time for all sorts of preventable reasons related to hunger and thirst and illness and injury and predators and parasites and, again, increasingly human activity, uh, habitat destruction and uh, climate change and, and all of these other sources. And obviously, there will be a limit to how much of this suffering we can rectify at scale. But you know, if, if you build a pool in your backyard and you leave a hole in the fence knowing that deer live in your backyard and then you see a little fawn walk through the hole in your fence and fall in the pool and you know you can save that fawn, then I think you have a responsibility to save that fawn. Jump in Even the pool. Even if you ruin your nice new suit. Out. Even if you ruin your nice <laughs> new suit. Yeah, a little... little uh, variation of, of the famine, affluence, and morality pond case. I, I And I think most of us would agree about that. You see people sharing uh, videos on social media all the time of people rescuing deer from fences and and mm-hmm. and dogs from the Sheep water. From and, everything. And, yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and I believe that we have that responsibility to wild animals much more generally. We, we are just systematically turning the nature into our backyard and building a pool <laughs> and watching animals fall in and then doing nothing about it. And we might not be able to rescue them all, but I think we should honestly rescue, rescue some. Uh, so, so I think mm-hmm. that this is a really profound responsibility that we have. But I also take seriously the concerns, the reasonable concerns that people have, according to which you know, humans are really good at bumbling into situations we barely understand and trying to approve them according to our own current standards and then making a mess of things and doing much more harm than good. And and so I, I think that we basically need to accept our responsibilities and our limitations in equal measure. Yes, we have these duties to wild animals. Yes, mm-hmm. we don't know what the hell to do right now. And so, so step one is to accept that reality. We owe them a lot. We have no idea how to discharge these duties and to focus right now on research and advocacy, uh, building mm-hmm. our knowledge and building, uh, again, a certain kind of infrastructure and political will for taking wild animals seriously so that a generation or two from now, we might actually be in a position where we can do something effectively for them. Do you think either morally or practically that we should be prioritizing harms to non-human wild animals that are being directly caused by the building of our pools and whatnot versus like, should we be checking, you know, maybe there's a virus that's like running through a population that actually isn't our fault for once and we could like, we could (laughs) manage to cure that or something. Should we be out there trying to, you know, vaccinate populations? Yeah, this is one of those areas where there might have to be a, a certain kind of compromise between consequentialists and non-consequentialists. In theory, a consequentialist would say uh, you should just 
do the most good you can independently of whether you are responsible for the problem. And a non-consequentialist might say you should really prioritize solving problems for which you are responsible. And and we might need a little bit of a compromise here so that we can agree on a way forward. Uh, and, and, and maybe that means assigning some additional weight to problems for which we are responsible, but not letting that be a decisive consideration. And I have, I have an open mind about that, but I will add that moving forward in the Anthropocene, a, a world reshaped by human activity, it will be increasingly hard to tell uh, which instances of non-human suffering we have complicity in or not. Mm -hmm. Whenever there is a fire or flood in, in the future, uh, it'll be an open question whether this would have happened or would have happened this severely without human activity. And, and so we might uh, eventually just have to proceed on the assumption that everything that happens is at least partly human cost and mm -hmm. and go from there. You mentioned the Anthropocene there, by the way. This was another interesting point I picked up on in the book. You had a sort of um, discussion about a, a choice between how to describe this current epoch, the Anthropocene or the, I think, capital scene was the other option to sort That's of right, highlight yeah. the economic models that are driving the problem. I really like that capital scene sort of approach. I'm curious where you are, what your preference is on that naming at this point. Yeah, I don't have a, a strong preference between those two labels. In general, the idea is that this is a new geological epoch where the dominant force or a dominant force in the, the planet is, is human activity or, or in particular a certain kind of human economic activity. And the Anthropocene frames the epoch in terms of the effects of human activity on the planet and the capitalist scene frames the epoch in terms of a, a certain kind of human economic activity on the planet and the benefit of uh the the capitalist scene is is arguably the anthropocene is too broad it it mm -hmm. uh, uh frames the the situation as though simply humans and human behaviors are the problem when in fact a certain kind of extractive uh economic activity has really been been driving these global impacts and global problems but on the other hand, the capitalist scene uh, uh, might be a little bit too narrow in the sense that it might lead people to believe that the problem is actually a, a certain narrow kind of economic system, namely uh, capitalism as practiced by particular nations, when in fact the, the relevant kind of economic activity is a little bit more general, is a, a certain mm. kind of extractive economic logic that can, that can be common across, for example, capitalist systems and socialist systems and communist systems, and that is in some sense rooted in, in certain basic facts about um, human motivations and, and uh, ambitions and so on. And mm. so I think, you know, uh, mm -hmm. one risk being a little bit too broad, one risk being a little bit too narrow, maybe which we should use as a little bit context dependent. But if I'm talking with non-academics, I would probably ditch both labels and just say something like, uh, this is this is what we need to do in a world reshaped by certain kind of human economic activity. <laughs> right. The exploitocene. No. The exploitocene, yeah. Um, so yeah, let's talk sort of economic side of things, because there was, I think, the hardest case in the book for me was where you get into the discussion about sort of specifically how do we treat animals during COVID and you have mm. this story of the, these mink farmers. Do you want to maybe just say a little bit about like just sort of set the vignette for us and why it's, why it's particularly horrifying? Sure. Yeah. The mink pandemic was a really unfortunately good example of a lot of the problems that I talk about in the book uh, because minks are, uh, highly uh, uh, susceptible to uh, viruses like COVID-19, and and so when when COVID-19 started in you know late late 2019, early 2020, we 
should have known, and and some some people did know that eventually this was going to reach mink farms. It was only a matter of time, and indeed it did reach mink farms in in spring 2020 mm-hmm. uh, in various countries. Minks started to contract COVID-19, and then of course we were concerned that they would uh, perhaps spread it between themselves, spread it back to humans. Maybe there would be novel variants, and in fact there was uh, at least one novel variant uh, that that we were concerned about at the time. And, and so we, we panicked and asked, well, what the hell should we do about this? And our solution, of course, was, well, we should call, uh, you know, a nice euphemism for killing them mm-hmm. all. And, and so uh, many nations resorted to either requiring or, or recommending that all farmers call their mink populations in order to reduce the, the spread of disease. And many farmers uh, would call their farmed animal populations and other captive animal populations simply also because of supply chain breakdowns like slaughterhouse closures or other problems and they had nowhere to send the animals. And so they would just kill them in mass in ways that are really brutal, like animals were beaten and shot and uh, buried alive and, uh, you know, ventilators were turned off. And so they suffocated or were overheated. These are really, really brutal ways to die. Um, And, you know, this illustrated all kinds of problems. Uh, First of all, it illustrates the problem that our use of animals is a driver of these health and and environmental threats like pandemics and climate change. When we keep thousands of animals in in cramped, uh, toxic conditions, then these animals will end up, this this place will end up being a, a good breeding ground for antibiotic or antimicrobial resistant pathogens, novel variants, and then those could go to humans. So, so maintaining these populations is a really good way to uh, increase outbreaks and epidemics and pandemics to make them worse also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then all, it also just goes to show how little we care about these animals and how much we treat them as objects or property commodities. Because when these disruptions do occur, we have no mechanisms in place, no infrastructure in place, no resources in place for taking care of them. In the human case, you know, mm-hmm. our, our response to the pandemic was highly imperfect, but at least we tried in, in you know, bits and pieces <laughs> to engage in quarantine and contact tracing and treatment and care. Uh, but with non-humans, we, we either lacked the ability or lacked the will to do that. And so our only option was basically to kill them. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, this shows that we, first of all, just simply should not be farming animals at this scale. It's too dangerous for human and non-human health and well-being. And it's too many animals for us to be able to care for them in normal times to say nothing of during disruptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and even if calling them was the right thing to do sometimes in this case, because we had no other options, that's really an indictment of the status quo. And we need to not only reduce how many animals we keep in captivity, but build the resources and infrastructure that we need to properly take care of the animals who we do keep in captivity. So I think those mm-hmm. are some of the lessons of the mink pandemic, and those can be generalized to climate change and other issues too. So, so let me ask you a hypothetical related to that, right? Let's imagine for the sake of argument that I am a deeply ethical mink farmer, right? I didn't choose the mink (laughs) farming life, but like, you know, I was born into it. I was raised into it. My family has only ever known mink farming and, and like we would be destitute if not or something like that. So Mm -hmm. something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been, I've been doing my best to be the most ethical to my minks that I possibly could right? adopting more humane practices and such along comes this pandemic. I am not getting any resources from the government, no support in how to deal with the, you know, state of my minks. I call in Jeff, the mink, you know, ethics expert, <laughs> right, to get some some outside advice on like what I ought to do in that moment right then and there, right? I can't mm-hmm. go back in time and not be a mink farmer or something, right? right? I'm right, stuck right, there. Right. What would you tell me to do? What would you say what would you say is the right way to deal with that situation in that moment? 
Yeah, I mean, I I am not sure what I would have recommended, and I would I would probably have wanted, of course, to learn more about the situation and the options. But but I I do see it as plausible, and this is a tragic reality. Uh, but but I do see it as plausible that there might have been no better option but to kill all of of the animals in this situation because because they already were living arguably bad lives uh, living in these these cages or in, in in this confinement and and that was already a hard situation for them and covid-19 is also bad for them and the kind of neglect that could occur during a disruption is also bad for them and so so it might have been the best thing to do to kill them as as painlessly as possible under the circumstances uh, that I, I'm not saying that is definitely the case, but I'm open to the possibility that mm-hmm. that in, in in some cases that that was the case. And and again, I think the lesson to learn there would be that yeah, sometimes we might have to make hard choices on behalf of other animals, including choices to to end their lives or to not bring them into existence in certain circumstances. Um, but but first of all, we can probably do that much less. Then we did. We we treat that as the sort of like first resort when we should instead be treating it as a last resort, uh, mm-hmm. and we should be doing it much um, more more humanely, more compassionately, more respectfully uh, instead of doing it in the most efficient manner possible, like burying them all alive. Essentially, we should devote some resources to actually making sure we can we can do this in a more professional manner, um, and then we should learn you know, learn our lesson from it and, and realize, oh, this, this is a result of our putting ourselves in a completely untenable position that we should never be in again. And so we should make it a priority to mm-hmm. reduce these captive animal populations and build the infrastructure we need to take care of them. So, so I do think that the world is too complicated that there will never be a need for violence. There will sometimes be a need to harm or kill um, captive animals or wild animals, either for self-defense or to defend somebody else or for the sufficiently greater good or for the animal's own well-being if they're really suffering in a terminal way. Uh, those, those could all be reasons why we might sometimes need to resort to violence or should at least consider that possibility. We should mm-hmm. do it much less, much better, treat it as the tragedy that it is, and put structural uh, changes in place that, that make it less necessary in the future. Do you think that being in a crisis changes our moral obligation or level of moral obligation to non-human animals? Let's imagine in that mink scenario, instead of them suffering from COVID, let's say that they're perfectly healthy, you know, uh, people who can transfer it, right? Like Mm -hmm. they can get it, they can pass it to us, but it doesn't decrease their quality of life. And let's also imagine because I'm a very ethical mink farmer, they're living a really good life at this moment. Mm -hmm. Is it ethical for us to cull that population just to protect human beings from potentially catching from them? Yeah, this is really where we get into the details of this kind of compromise between consequentialist and non-consequentialist moral theories. And and again, I do Mm -hmm. think a compromise is going to be necessary and not just a compromise, but a recognition that each theory in practice in this world is going to include some elements of the other theory, right? Like a consequentialist needs to appreciate that there can be a role for rights and virtues and caring relationships, because when we, you know, take the time to invest in systems of rights and really uh, assign weight 
to write and and cultivate virtuous character traits so that we can kind of naturally treat others with respect and compassion and cultivate caring relationships and good structures that incentivize caring relationships. That does much more good in the long run, I think, than if we just always ruthlessly try to apply cost benefit analysis, harm benefit analysis to every situation and do, hmm. do uh, the most good possible and expectation. So from a consequential side, I do think we should treat animals as having rights and humans as having rights. And so we should proceed on a an assumption that we should not go around killing one to save five, right? But then on the non-consequential side, again, we have to take responsibility for all of the harms that our activity is complicit in. And we have to recognize that there are cases where harming or killing someone can be acceptable, like self-defense or other defense, or maybe for the sufficiently greater good, if you accept a threshold view or, you know, for somebody's own sake. And, and so this is really where the details matter because you might, everyone might agree that it would be wrong to kill one to save five. And so if the minks are having good lives and and the only reason we were killing them is to save like roughly five times as many uh, other, other animals who might otherwise suffer and die from COVID-19, then if we're being consistent anti-species as perhaps we should not kill them because that would be a violation of their rights. But if the stakes were sufficiently high and if their lives were not mm-hmm. that good, um, like, like if, if we were killing a certain number of minks to save like a thousand times as, as many animals with comparable, you know, sorts of welfare or, or a million times as many, then maybe that hits the threshold and it becomes the right thing to do from both the consequentialist and the non-consequentialist perspective. So it really gets down to these questions for consequentialists of um, how, how much weight should you assign rights so Mm -hmm. that, like they can play the right role in doing the most good possible in the long run. And then what does that mean in this kind of case? And for non-consequentialists, it will be if you accept a threshold um, where where you should, shouldn't should ordinarily kill one to save five, but then when the stakes are high enough, you can kill one to save a thousand or a million. Like what is that threshold and what does that mean for this case? So, so you really have to get into the details like that in mm-hmm. order to answer this kind of question, I think. And then do you think that approach then generalizes to things like testing covid vaccines on animals or maybe culling you know animal populations in non-crisis times or something like that yeah i i basically think you just have to figure out what your framework is when is harming and killing okay as a general matter and how does that interact with the relevant differences between humans and Uh, Mm non-humans and and i expect that where we would end up is with some kind of threshold it would be high enough that we wouldn't go around killing everyone uh you know, every day, but, but low enough that, you know, um, when, when the stakes are really high, we can do what's necessary. Uh, so, so in general, I think about, for example, lab animals, what I said before about wild animals and, and minks during a pandemic, it might sometimes be necessary to kill them either for their own good or to protect ourselves or to protect someone else. But it's the kind of thing that we should do as a last resort, not as a first resort professionally, Mm -hmm. not treating it as like a a game or a sport or a fun weekend activity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and the kind of thing that might become even less necessary in the future than it is now, if we build better structures and alternatives, like in the case of lab animals, we already don't need to harm and kill them nearly as much as we do. In, in mm-hmm. fact, to test vaccines, we already know a lot about vaccines and we could have gone straight to human trials in, in some cases. And, and we actually did in some ways go straight to human trials to accelerate mm-hmm. COVID-19 uh, vaccine development. So, so we already don't need to harm them as much as we do, even when it comes to sort of important medical research. And if we spend time investing in alternatives like uh, uh, 
organonic-chip methods and and other other sorts of um, computer methods. And and if we become a little bit more comfortable with human research, like we could have done human challenge trials faster, for example, mm-hmm. um, those are all ways that that we can make um, harmful, invasive, non-therapeutic, non-consensual, non-human subjects research less necessary in the future. And it's already less necessary now than many people think. Mm. Um, one other sort of thing I want to get on here before we run out of time. You mentioned this, this is a sort of classic argument now within animal ethics about, you know, shared well-being where, you know, factory farms are a breeding ground for pathogens that could then jump to the human population. Do you feel like those arguments have actually gained more purchase in the post-COVID world? Or is there maybe a concern that like our attention bump has already kind of passed and substantial changes that we could have wrung out of the situation are sort of already fading? Yeah, I th- this this is kind of what I, I signaled at the start of the conversation when I said that I think signs are mixed. I, I do think we have talked about animals as they relate to global health and environmental issues much more over the past couple of years than, than we had previously, not only because of COVID-19, but also because of other changes related to climate change. For example, the Australia bushfires were a major moment mm-hmm. where a lot of people were concerned about saving the koalas and the kangaroos and, and so on. And, you know, about 3 billion animals we know about suffered or died in the Australia bushfires. And then mm-hmm. more recently, there were, uh, you know, heat waves and also floods in the Pacific Northwest, and and hundreds of thousands of farmed animals and at least a billion aquatic animals died in in those uh, heat waves, and and also a, a comparable number of captive animals died in the floods, and and those have all been moments where we've recognized that we have these responsibilities to animals and also maybe our use of animals is contributing to these health and environmental threats. And some things have started to change. For example, following the the emergence of COVID-19, China in significant ways permanently banned the wildlife trade. That was a big moment. Uh, Many countries have now banned fur farming. So that Hmm. mink pandemic story that we were telling earlier has a little bit of a happy ending in that respect. Many countries are now banning fur Hmm. farming. Um, but, But even, even over the past two years, we haven't been talking about these issues nearly as much as we should have. And even if countries are uh, perhaps making progress on the wildlife trade and fur farming, they're not touching animal farming in general yet, or factory farming in particular, which are the main drivers of, of these threats uh, and industrial fishing and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, Hard to drive and, people's and, food prices right now, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and, and there's a risk, or at least that that is the excuse. I think there are ways of doing it that would, in mm-hmm. fact, drive down people's food sure, prices fair, and fair make enough, food right. more more accessible and available. But but yeah, that is a ready-made narrative that that makes it easy to, to rationalize uh not not uh uh pursuing this this obviously politically controversial but ultimately necessary goal of, of ending factory farming and limiting animal farming if not ending it. Um yeah so so we talked about it much more. We made progress on it in ways that were often surprising and faster than I would have expected, but we ultimately didn't talk about it nearly as much as we should have. And mm-hmm. we can expect and worry that that uh our conversations about it will diminish as time passes and the world decides whether it's true or not that COVID nineteen is behind us. <laughs> mm. Fair enough. All right. So I got to torture you here in a second, but I always like to finish off this main segment by asking about resources that you'd recommend for folks who want to dive a little deeper on this issue. Are there things that were particularly helpful for you as you were putting this book together, for example? 
Oh, sure. I mean, the, the, the book covers a lot of issues. And so there's no one single resource that I think is the resource, but I, I can mention some authors who were helpful about various topics and, and people might mm -hmm. be interested in those particular topics. So some people who are doing really good work on wild animal ethics and, and wild animal welfare include Yuquan Ng, Oscar Horta, Brian Tomasic, and Kyle Johansson. They all have really good papers or uh, a book in Kyle's case that you can check out. Uh, Dale Jameson's Reason in a Dark Time, I think, is a really excellent book about climate ethics and policy and economics. Aisha Akhtar has a really excellent book on animals and public health that goes into much more mm -hmm. detail about the public health impacts of our uses of animals than, than I am able to in this book. Claire Palmer has a lot of really interesting papers on animals and climate change, uh, and I think is doing more work on animals and climate change and, and has a little bit more of a cautious uh, attitude about interventions in, in nature than I do, even though I agree that we should be cautious too. Uh, Alistair Cochran and Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka are all doing really great work on uh, animals and, and political status right now. Uh, Jason Shoecraft at Rethink Priorities is doing some great work on animal sentience and welfare. And then finally, I'll, I'll mention uh, Tatiana Vizak and Robert Garner have a great uh, collection called The Ethics of Killing Animals, which mm -hmm. is uh, uh, starting to explore these creation ethics and population ethics issues about animals that I think are gonna be really important in the future. Nice. All right. Well, that's plenty for folks to check out there. I think that's that's wonderful. So unfortunately, that means now it's time for me to torture you. <laughs> All right. This is the enlightening round. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. <sighs> and because you are a returning guest, you get the enlightening round to Trolley Boogaloo, which Ooh, obviously wow, okay. will be particularly exciting for you given our conversation here today. Right, so right. Uh, the standard we're asking for here is what is when is it morally permissible to pull the lever? All right. So I'm okay. going to give you a series of situations and I wanted you to tell me, is it morally permissible or not? And we, we mean in practice, all else being equal. I'm sorry, in principle, right. all else being equal, right? Correct. Not in practice in the real world with all of the like indirect consequences that we can foresee and so on. Correct. Right. All mm -hmm. else being equal. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay, Are you cool. ready? Yep. You ready for your trolley journey? So I'm ready. Is it permissible to save five by killing one? Yes. Okay. Is it permissible to, I assume, save one billion by killing one? Yes. Okay, great. Is it permissible to save yourself by killing one? Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> There's no maybes, yes or no. Just uh, like round one, we know how this works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and this is this is a like any any random person in the world. I know nothing about them. Could be, yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. What about uh, saving yourself by killing one million? No. Okay. Uh, saving five by pushing the person responsible for them being on the tracks onto the tracks. Yes. Okay. Uh, killing your favorite artist to save their complete body of work. Yes. Okay. Saving five but you yourself have to wait, go through a teleport. No, no. I was thinking about indirect effects. I was thinking about indirect effects. No, it is not okay <laughs> to kill to kill. Not the okay artist, to kill the artist. The okay. Yep, yep. Okay, fair enough. Um, so situation, you you can save five people, but you yourself have to go through a teleporter to do so. Oh, sure, of course. Okay. Um, saving a ten-year-old by killing an eighty-year-old. 
Oh God, what are you doing to me? (laughs) (laughs) It says torture right on the label, folks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I'll say yes uh, with various caveats that we can't get into. Uh, Obviously, right. Again, permissible, right? Uh, Saving a world historic person by killing a non-world historic person. (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, all else being equal, yes, permissible, you know, okay. a lot is going to depend on what the person is world historic for, but okay. <laughs> but that would saving, be indirect. So, yeah. Saving your own personal favorite non-human animal by killing one human. Oh, boy. Um, well, shit. <laughs> I guess no. Um, just because my... If my favorite non-human animal was like, you know, an African elephant or a whale, then maybe I would have a case, but I think probably not, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. So it depends on the animal. Yeah, it um, depends on the animal. What about saving an ecosystem by killing one human? And, and this ecosystem includes all sorts of sentient beings. Yeah, like a, like a full, proper ecosystem. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say yes to that. Okay. And finally, saving a sentient AI by killing one human. This well, and and we don't know if this is a, a utility monster situation or just like a barely sentient AI. Just just let's say comparably sentient to a human being. Oh, got it. Um, and the question is just permissible, so I'll say yes. Okay. All right, you survived. How do you feel? I feel good. You know, it 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 basically <laughs> you know as long as we're doing it in principle uh, and and all else being equal, it's just a sort of quick utility calculating uh, <laughs> okay, exercise. Uh, and, and permissibility and is a lower bar, perhaps. So. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In all those tie-breaking cases, one-to-one cases, you can just say yes. All right. Well, uh, are you able to stick around for a little bit? We'll do a little bit of bonus. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. Great. So um, for folks who are not patrons, do you want to let folks know where you can, where they can find your stuff, find you on the Twitters, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can find me pretty easily by Googling me. My, my name is Jeff Sebo, J-E-F-F, S as in Sam, E, B as in boy. Oh, and uh, you can find information about me on jeffcebo.net, uh, Jeff R. Sebo on Twitter. And yeah, uh, the book is at the OUP website. Yeah. And once again, it's saving animals, saving ourselves. Um, so yeah, Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. Folks, if you want to hear a little bit more from Jeff, you know, come join us on Patreon. Stick around for a little bit of VIP content. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest monthly patron, Jody, and our newest yearly patron, Citizen42. Uh, And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding. Sometimes I struggle to come up with a new username worth saying. Today I didn't even try. (laughs) Dude, fix the vote. Any election lawyers want a pioneer case in the California Fair Maps Act? Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editors, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter your species, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 